You may be seated. Uh, We're going to read the scripture passage um, from which Pastor Matt will preach today. This is Romans chapter 2, starting at verse 17. Now, you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you, then, who teach others, do not teach yourself. You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have written the code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. All right, good morning. If you hadn't found Romans 2 in a Bible near you, I encourage you to get a Bible open. There should be one in a seat rack in front of you if you didn't bring your own. If you need one, take one home with you. Uh, as I've been just thinking about uh, Cornerstone Church, as I've been thinking about my own heart, you know, I've just been praying a lot. Um, some of you know that when God works in a single person, when God, when God moves in the heart of a single person, that is, a, that is a profound miracle to the glory of God and the God, God alone. And yet sometimes God chooses to work in many all at once. And a lot of times we call that a revival or a renewal when there's a, a massive outpouring, a surprising awakening that when God shows up on a people, and, and it usually starts in the church. He starts with people who have sat in pews or, or comfy seats for years, and he begins to work in their hearts to show them true things about his character, his holiness, his power, while at the same time revealing in their own hearts continued areas of selfishness and pride and folly. And so I just want you to know I've been praying more that God would bring renewal of individuals that then spills into revival of a church. And then the, in the glory of God, when that happens, you end up blessing your city. That the, the, the people in your city are served and loved and encouraged. That they're, they're, they're ministered to with simple things like I know we're providing shoes for, for students this fall. But not just shoes, uh, but a welcome into people's homes. And all that is only possible if God shows up. And so let's pray that God shows up. But I, I want to warn you, though, in this text kind of brings this warning to light that that there, there are imposters, or you, you, we can get conned into trusting in ourselves rather than trusting in God. 
So you, you probably have never heard of a, na- a, a, a name of someone named William Thompson. Here's a picture of William Thompson. Uh, the New York Herald actually published an article about William Thompson in 1849. Uh, the title of the article was The Confidence Man. Uh, William would show up on the streets of New York wearing genteel clothing, and he would, he would go up to people and greet them as if they were old chums. And then William would proceed to request the use of their watch for the remainder of the day. In fact, the New York Herald captured kind of his recurring phrase in these conversations. He would ask, have you confidence in me to trust me with your watch until tomorrow? The citizens of New York were caught off guard by the bold speaker in his fancy dress, and they felt embarrassed to have forgotten this long-lost acquaintance. And before they knew it, they handed off their watch, never to see it again. Mr. William Thompson goes down as the first confidence man, that is, the first con man. And his victims were the first to fall victim to a confidence game. Now, have you ever heard the expression, a confidence game? You know what that is? Uh, uh, The New World Encyclopedia Dictionary gives us a definition. This is what a confidence game is. A confidence game is also known as a con, a scam, a grift, a flim-flam. It's an attempt to win the trust and confidence of a victim known as the mark in order to defraud them. Although general expectation is that con artists are untrustworthy, their particular ability is actually to be able to gain the trust of their victims. They play on people's selfish desires greed, and the desire to obtain much with minimal effort. Now, the text in front of us that Paul is, 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 is teaching through in his letter to the Romans is actually warning about a dangerous confidence game. But what's interesting in this text, the con man and the victim are the same person. We tell ourselves lies that we want to hear, And then we believe the lies that we tell ourselves. It's you, it's me. Inside there is every, there's this temptation, every human person to put confidence in the wrong things. We lie to ourselves and then we believe the lie. For instance, we're in good shape with God. We're made of better stuff than the next guy. Now, interesting enough, John Calvin of yesteryear, 500 years ago, uh, he actually warned us that this happens. He wrote this. There is nothing more acceptable to the human mind than flattery. And accordingly, when told that its endowments are of higher order, it is apt to be excessively credulous. That is, we're easy marks. We're gullible, especially when it comes to praising our own goodness. We love to tell ourselves that everything is okay, but Paul says, watch out. That this confidence game has no substance to it. So, opening up your Bibles to chapter 2, 
uh, we're going we're gonna to look at uh, two cautions and one condition. Two cautions and one condition. But let me just remind you of where we find ourselves in Paul's letter. Right, so Paul is writing to a Christian church in the first century. It's a church he's actually never visited before. He knows some people who are there. He knows people who have been there. He knows kind of the dynamics that are going on in this church. Uh, one of the dom- dynamics that appears to be so in this church is there's a different. There's all sorts of different people a part of this church. Uh, with differing levels of experience with the Bible. And some are, some are, are Gentiles who are coming out of like Greco-Roman paganism and you know, emperor worship. Uh, and some are coming out of just total pagan lifestyle, you know, the wild stuff you know, of the, the wild feasts. <laughs> but there's also uh, a Jewish people present. Uh, who had been practicing Jews. Uh, the, the Jews had been spread out of the Greco-Roman Empire. You could almost go to any major city in the Greco-Roman Empire, and you would come upon a synagogue. Well, out of that synagogue, some trusted Jesus, Maybe all, probably all the way back at the, the first uh, dawning of the church at Pentecost in Jerusalem, and then they went back. Well, if you've been with us the last several weeks, Paul has been putting together a very sustained argument, starting all the way back at chapter 1, verse 18. And in chapter 1, verse 18, he's, he's talking to everyone in the room. And, and slowly what he's doing is he's saying, you have nothing to boast in. In fact, every person has wandered from God, and every person has uh, sinned against God. And it, it seems like in chapter 1, 18 through verse 32, he's talking primarily to those who were coming out of that Greco-Roman past. It had been, you know, your typical kind of Roman pagan And then last week, we looked at an audience that was kind of probably a mixed bag of of religious moralists. But all along, he's left one final audience to talk to. An audience that, man, their necks probably hurt. They have been nodding so hard in Paul's letter. Oh, yeah, Paul. Oh, yeah. Yep. Oh, yeah, that Greco-Roman neighbor of mine, you can't believe what that guy does. Oh, yeah, that moralist who's out there quoting Aristotle. Do you know how he lives? We're not like that. We're better than that. And so that's why you see this transition in chapter 2, verse 17. He's got one more audience in the church he wants to talk to. And he says, now you, if you call yourself a Jew, that's who he's talking to. He wants to talk to Jews. And I, I, the, the, the two cautions that he has for first century Jews, I think, are quite relevant for the type of people who are sitting here today. And here are his two cautions. Caution number one that we'll talk about is spiritual knowledge does not guarantee God's honor. Spiritual knowledge does not guarantee God's honor. And second, he's going to say spiritual signs do not guarantee spiritual substance. So spiritual knowledge does not guarantee God's honor, and spiritual signs do not guarantee spiritual substance. Those are the cautions, and then we'll get to the end. Here's the condition then. Only God can bring the honor and the substance. Only God can bring the honor and the substance. So let's talk about this first caution. Spiritual knowledge does not guarantee God's honor. So look with me here in the text. He says, now you, if you call yourself a Jew... If you rely on the law and boast in God, 
if you know his will, and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of the knowledge of the truth. So, by the way, seven, verses 17 through 24, it's an if-then statement. I just read the if part. We'll get to the then in a second. If, if you were a Jew, if you, if you have been given God's very words, God actually, with his finger, wrote the Ten Commandments on stone for the Jews. God spoke to Moses face to face as a man talks with a man is what it described. And God gave Moses the first five books of the Bible. Then in various ways and in various times with the different prophets, he gave them the rest of the Old Testament. The first five books are called the law or the Torah. The whole Old Testament has been called the Tanakh. They have been given the very words of God. And they were, they were designated by God to be a light to instruct the foolish, and the ignorant. They have knowledge of God that no one had. I mean, one time Jesus was in an argument with a Samaritan woman, and the Samaritans were kind of this offshoot of Judaism that wandered from the truth. And Jesus set her straight. He said, salvation is from the Jews. He's, he's correcting her. You're, the, those Jews, the truths in the Jewish scriptures, you need those. Samaritan woman, because they point to me, is what he'll say. He says, you've got spiritual knowledge. You've got good stuff. In fact, just want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, when you pick up and you read Genesis or Habakkuk or Jonah or the Proverbs or Ecclesiastes or Numbers or Leviticus, yes, even Leviticus, maybe especially Leviticus, it's light for you to understand your life in this dark world. A lot of you guys read a lot of stuff on the internet. Let me tell you, it is not giving you any spiritual instruction. It's probably just making you angry. But God's word, it's good. Well, he says you have all of this spiritual knowledge. You are the chosen people of God. But that's just the if sentence. He says, but, or then. Look at where he turns the corner, though. He says in verse 21, you then who teach others, are you teaching yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? Some of you were really angry a number of years ago when people were stealing and looting during you know, some of the riots. It made you really angry. Do you cheat on your taxes? Do you lie to the government? Do you hide money places you know you shouldn't hide? That's the idea. You who know right, do you do right? Uh, You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who know of the value of sexual fidelity, the guardian of the mind and the heart and the body for your spouse and your spouse alone, is that marked by your life? Paul is asking these questions because he says, if you search your heart, you know you've fallen. You've taken what's not yours. You've lusted after what does not belong to you. He says, you who 
abhor idols. I hate idolatry. Do you rob temples? That could be, do you actually bring the full and best sacrifice to God's holy temple? Or are you actually feeling like, well, I, you know, since this is all fake, pagan idolatry, it's okay if I take a little from them if I want. We don't really know exactly what that means, but it's getting to the heart of, you, you kind of justify whatever spiritual activity you want because you've got deeper spiritual knowledge. And then verse 23 and 24 gets to kind of the heart. You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking it? Right? So remember, spiritual knowledge does not guarantee God's honor. In fact, if you've been given spiritual knowledge, if you know the truth and you violate it, you actually bring dishonor to the God who has given you his word. And, and there, there had to have been Jews who were like, bup, 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 bup. like they're, they're, they're just looking for that inner lawyer to come out and defend themselves. He actually then quotes the Bible, right? Before you get to your butt, let me just tell you this. God's word says this happens. And he says, as it is written, he quotes the Old Testament, Isaiah 52, I believe. God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So that's, that's strong language. He's saying that those pagans, those Gentiles, they've looked at your life and what you've claimed to believe is true. And then they've watched you live it. And because of your actions and your practices, they are denigrating your God. If that's the God of the Jews, I don't want that God. If that's the God of the Christians, I don't want that God. Spiritual knowledge does not guarantee God's honor. You know, when I read this passage, I think of the guy. You know the guy. Maybe you are the guy. <laughs> that has all of the, the health equipment in his basement. The treadmill, the weight set, the elliptical you know, they've got men's health magazines on the end table. Like whatever best-selling new diet book, it's like it lines their shelves, right? And that guy loves to tell you what you're eating isn't healthy. But that guy eats like a guy from Mississippi who goes to the KFC. Right? And never exercises. It's the idea that he knows all things. He even has all the resources to do all things. But by his very practices, he brings dishonor to himself. And he almost dishonors the fitness to which he's trying to give honor. And so this hits home, I hope, for you because it does for me. I am a card-carrying evangelical Christian. I believe in the inspired, authoritative word of God that is light and richness and truth. I want to teach my neighbors and my friends that this is a living, breathing document that God is using for the Spirit of God to instruct us and to lead us and to guide us. But the one who teaches it, do I let it teach me? Am I humbled by it? Are you humbled by the word? Does it humble you? God says the one that he is pleased by is the one who trembles and is contrite under the word. Not above the word. <laughs> Trembling under it. Uh, you know, our Lord and Savior Jesus, he, he had a conversation once with the evangelicals of his day. They were called scribes and Pharisees. They knew their Bibles. They knew it really well. They practiced it probably better than anybody around. And he had some woes to them in uh, recorded in Matthew 23. Let me just remind you of verses 25 to 28. 
Jesus is speaking. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You're hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Look good on the outside. Inside, greed, self-indulgence. He says, blind Pharisee. Remember, you're supposed to be a teacher of the blind. No, 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 blind Pharisee, blind teacher, blind evangelical. First, clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then outside also will be clean. He next says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisee, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. What an image, right? Can speak what's right, can even maybe foster some external performance that makes people think you're living right, but inwardly it's, it's spiritually dead, decaying, unclean, impure. That spiritual knowledge does not guarantee God's honor uh, should just humble us all, have us look inside. There's going to be hope at the end, but have you let the Lord self-examine you, look deep into your heart. Um, Again, John Calvin has this to say. He says, the more thorough a person's self-examination, the greater the despondency. The more thorough the self-examination, the greater the despondency. But the despondency makes the cross even greater. The death of Jesus for sinners makes it even more beautiful and and priceless. So despondency is a means to an end. But let us do the self-examination. Let's feel the despondency. Let's come again to the cross of Jesus Christ and say, Lord, my only hope is in your death for me. My only hope is in your resurrection from the dead. Spiritual knowledge does not guarantee God's honor. Again, we've got these Jews that their inner lawyer is coming out, and Paul knows it. He senses it. But, 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 I'm circumcised. Yeah, 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 I know. I don't get it. Perfect. I mean, I'm pretty good. But, but I'm circumcised. So, I mean, that should cover things. Right? It's not that different from the, maybe the Christian who says, yeah, 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 I, it's not, I'm not great, but I'm baptized. I go to church. I take the Lord's Supper. I come to Mass. I pray the Lord's Prayer. And so Paul's going to say, hey, secondly, spiritual signs don't guarantee spiritual substance. Uh, look now as he turns the corner. He knows that the Jews are like, ah, 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 but circumcision. But he says circumcision has value if. You observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will not they be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, who even though you have the written code and circumcision are a law breaker. Right, so circumcision goes all the way back to, to, to the Abram, to Abraham. It goes all the way back to the father of the Jewish 
people. He goes, that Abraham was given the sign of circumcision that he was in a relationship with the living God. And every male in his household then and since in the Jewish faith are supposed to be circumcised just to symbolize that God has cut a relationship with us. He's cut a covenant with us. And so... The Jews, yeah, I, didn't, I don't perform perfectly, but I have a relationship with God that goes back to Abraham. And if you really want to me, I can demonstrate this covenant with you. Now, you don't want that. But there's a sense of which there, there was pride in the mark. Confidence in the mark. High confidence in the sign. And Paul just says, you know what? If that cut that physical mark doesn't actually cut to the heart. It it doesn't change the way that you walk in step with God. It would always be better if you hadn't been circumcised. In fact, those people who aren't circumcised, who are outperforming you, they they are shaming you, brother, sister. I mean, think about a wedding ring, right? This is a sign. This is a sign of covenant and fidelity. I can almost guarantee that any wife or woman does not want a man who wears this ring and cheats on her five times a week. She would rather have a loyal boyfriend. And that's kind of what Paul's saying. Like if you have the sign and there's no substance, it'd be a whole lot better to have the substance without the sign. Signs do have value. They, they, are, they are wonderful gifts. Uh, in, the, in the liturgy of the Lord's Supper that's in the book of the Common Prayer, Thomas uh, Cramner, he has a wonderful line where he says, these are God's gifts for God's people. Right? Signs are gifts for God's people. But the, the, the gift only works if it's received in faith. Sometimes these, these, these signs, baptism, the Lord's Supper, they're actually called visible sermons. They're, they're the visible word of God held out to people. But like any preaching of the word or reading of the word, the, the, the sermon has value only if it's accompanied by faith. Trusting, believing. And so Paul is laying this foundation that knowledge doesn't guarantee God's honor. And and signs don't mean there's actual substance. And so now he moves in the last two verses. He says, so here's the condition. Verse 28 says, a person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly. Nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No. A person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. Did you catch that? No human hand can do this by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise, such a person's honor, is not from other people but from God. Only God can bring the honor, and only God can bring the substance. Let's talk about the honor first. Notice the last verse. 
It says, such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Um, there is something in the human heart that wants to be in the right before the world, before God, before themselves. They want someone or something to look down and say, you're okay. And we will work any angle to get that praise. Do you guys know, you know the expression, working the angles? Uh, I've been driving out to the North Pole this past fall and spring. That's the Tuma soccer fields north of Cedar Rapids. And I've been watching Charity play soccer. And soccer at that age is a very simple game. It's a game of angles. So when you're on defense... You want to keep the ball as far to the sidelines and as away from the goal as possible. It makes it hard to kick. If the ball is in the center of the field, about 50 feet from the goal, you got a lot of options to score. But, so we teach them, play the angles, get it to the outside, kick it down the sideline. When you take possession, right, then start moving it to the center of the field so that you can work the angles to your advantage. The human heart loves to play the angles. And so if I got to go to church to be right with God, I'll come to church. If I'm in a culture that says blow off God and hold to some other ideology, well, I'll do that to be justified before people. But Paul says what we actually need is not praise from other people or honor from other people or even our own praise. We need what can only come from God. He has to declare us in the right. He has to look down and say, that's my son. That's my daughter. It's the only thing that will satisfy what you're doing when you're playing the angles. But what's, a, what's surprising about Christianity compared to every other religion, the only way you ever get God's honor and praise is when you come to the table of salvation and bring only your sin and your shame and your guilt. Leave your good works, works at home, my friends. And you think, I'm, where'd you get that? I get it from the Bible. Uh, Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells one of the most provocative parables, at least for me. Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. Uh, Luke tells us why we're going to hear the parable that we're going to hear. Luke says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. That's who it's for. People like me. People like you. And he says, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, I'm robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Now, before you, you know, we scourge this guy, please notice he gives credit to God. I thank you, God. I mean, by the way, that's a warning that just because you're praying... And saying thank you to God doesn't mean you're right with God. Some of us take God 
on our lips. We pray like this. And it sounds good. Thank you that I'm not a wicked, horrible, no good, very bad person. Verse 13, Paul, Jesus is going for the heart, hopefully your heart. He said, but the tax collector, he stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. The only thing this man brought to the temple that day was his sin. And he pled for mercy. Then Jesus says, I tell you that this man, this second man, rather than the other, he went home justified before God. That person went home right with God. That one person went home with God's blessing, God's honor, God's praise. That's my son. That's my child. And then Jesus puts this big blanket over who who are his people. He says, all those who exalt themselves, they'll be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. The way that we receive God's praise, his honor, is we get as low as we can go. The one thing I love about some of the older saints in this church, you've just learned how to go lower than the rest of us. The advancement in the Christian life is to go lower, not higher. And Jesus set the model. Who in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. Took on human appearance. Became a slave, a servant. Became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him. So we want to go lower and lower and lower and lower. And then God says, these are my kids. Quit playing the angles and you fall on your face. But not, not only does God bring honor, back in Romans 2, it says God brings substance Did you see the substance, right? A person is only a Jew, right? And the term Jew at this standpoint is someone who has been in a struggling relationship with God, right? To be a Jew, uh, Paul's going to bring this home. A Jew is anyone who is brought into a relationship with God through the Messiah. So this isn't just physical Jews by descent and ethnicity. All true Jews are one who believe in the Messiah, who believe in Abraham's blessed son who has come. But he look what he says. He says, it's done inwardly, a circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. This means you can't do this yourself. Years ago, at the end of a Puritan's sermon, a Puritan pastor He would say, here's your application. And it was a recurring application. Go home and pray that God saves you. Go home and pray that God would cut you to the heart. Go home and beg that the Spirit of God would come down on you, undeserving sinner, that God would change your heart. Because you can't do it. Only God can do it. 
And, and by the way, Paul is not getting this from the New Testament alone. He gets this from the Old Testament. Just turn back in your Bible to Deuteronomy uh, chapter 30. So Deuteronomy, it's the last book that Moses wrote. I'd even encourage you to read the law again with fresh eyes that much of the law has the gospel in it because the law is going to say, here are the commands and duties of God that you will not achieve, but God can still save you. And you get that from a verse like Deuteronomy 30 verse six. There's all sorts of instructions about circumcision in Genesis and Leviticus. But when you get to Deuteronomy 30 verse six, Moses is saying, but by the way, don't trust in physical circumcision. This was the gospel for the Jews before their Messiah came. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. If the Lord God didn't circumcise a Jew prior to the Messiah, they didn't live. If the Lord doesn't, God doesn't circumcise your heart after the Messiah, you will not live. And that's why Paul is saying in Romans 2, don't trust the sign. Trust that God can actually circumcise your heart, that can come in and, and cut and change and transform. A scholar by the name of Michael Bird says, an obedient heart always trump, trump, trumps a circumcised foreskin. Right? You want God to cut it to, to, the, to the heart, to the deepest part of your being. If you turn to the right in the New Testament, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul expounds this more. Uh, Philippians 3, verses 1 through 3, he says, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. So those people who are like, you got to get circumcised. You got to get circumcised. In one place he says, hey, if cutting a little bit off makes you close to God, cut the whole thing off. You'll be really close to God. He says, but no. Verse three, for we, it is we who are the circumcision. We who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus. We don't boast in the law. We don't boast in Moses. We don't boast in circumcision. We put our hope, our entire reliance in Jesus Christ, and we put no confidence in the flesh. None. God has to work. God has to change us. When we talk about this circumcision of the heart, there's all sorts of doctrines that you can study this week. Sometimes it's called regeneration. Sometimes it's being born again or born from above. This is the supernatural work of God to come on a human heart and cut it in such a way that you love God like you've never loved before. And God alone can do that. And God loves to do that. And so ask him to do it. So let me just talk to a few people as we close up. You know, first I just want to talk to the eighth grader in the room. <laughs> can I talk to the eighth grader? Maybe you're like me. You grew up going to church, sometimes dragged, sometimes willingly. You had to memorize Bible verses. Maybe, maybe you've been baptized. Maybe you take the Lord's Supper regularly. So here, here's some questions, though, for you. Do you have Christ? Do you have Christ? Has he worked on your heart so that you love him? 
Do you love God with an all-out love? Again, I want to say this. You, my friend, will not have this happen by working harder. It's not by your hand or someone else's hand that the hardest circumstance. It's by the Spirit of God. And so cry out, God, make me alive, O God. God must save you. You cannot save yourself. So blessed middle schooler, turn to Christ. But can I appeal also to those in their 40s? And for you, maybe you look back and you remember putting your trust in Christ as a teenager or maybe in college. Or maybe like me, you remember some of those moments in your young adulthood where you, when you were worshiping, maybe at a retreat or a concert, there was something stirring in your soul that was almost magical, but it was actually spiritual. But today it feels like that's just gone. You long for those joys. You used to crave hours to read the Bible, but now like five minutes feels like you just ran a marathon with Jesus. I just have two words. One, first know that your, your faith in God is not based on your feelings. And so you can trust that God who has promised will remain faithful even when your feelings at times kind of dwindle. In fact, sometimes when those feelings dwindle, it gives you an opportunity to walk by faith in the truths that God has given you. We have no idea what it was like when Joseph was in, you know, a slave and then in a dungeon. But the man walked by faith in the darkest of places, clinging to something of God so that when he had his opportunity, he said, let me tell you what God can do. And yet I do want to say to you, it is wonderfully, it's a wonderful prayer to ask God to make you love him deeper again. To renew your heart. To have it come alive again. To pray for spiritual affections or feelings for God. The Psalms are filled with passionate cries from people who feel like they're in a dry and weary place. And they're asking God, pour down the water again. Pour down the love by your spirit. And third, one last word to the, the Christian who may be in the final quarter of their lives. Remember the promise in Philippians that the God who started a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion. The beauty of that promise is the God who started, he will carry you. Even in later Christian life, you can go back to trusting in knowledge or trusting in signs or trusting in your efforts. My encouragement to the person in the last quarter, trust God. He is faithful. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so to continue to trust him. One last story and we'll move to communion. The U.S. Open is one of the most prestigious, prestigious golf events every year. And one of the things that makes the U.S. Open so interesting is any golfer in America can make the field. There are a series of qualifying events all across the country. There's some somewhat locally that if you can win enough qualifying events... You can go play in the U.S. Open. That's awesome. Anybody can make it any year. Well, on May 8th of this year, there was a man by the name of Tommy Kuehl. I think we have a picture of Tommy. He was playing in a U.S. Open qualifier. Uh, Tommy has just graduated from the University of Illinois. He dreams of being a professional golfer. And on May 8th, he shot a course record 62 at a U.S. Open qualifier, the lowest score of the day. But then Tommy did something that shocked the crowd. 
At the end of the round, he realized that he had violated rule 13.1c, which reads that you're not allowed to fix aeration marks on the green. Now, no person actually called him on his actions, but he called himself out. And later he said, I felt sick, so sick to my stomach, I knew I wouldn't be able to sleep if I didn't tell the rules official. Tommy's infraction led to an immediate disqualification. He will not play in the U.S. Open this summer. Now, friends, of the things I'm preaching today, you and you alone know the truth. You know if you've been trusting in spiritual knowledge, but not in Christ. You know if you've been trusting in spiritual science, but have been not substantively changed by the Spirit of God. And therefore, you and you alone get to do heart work with God this week. Maybe up to today, you will admit that you've been caught in a dangerous confidence game. You've lied to yourself and you've believed the lies. You've put your trust in the wrong things. And so today you can repent and turn from outward things and ask God for that deep spiritual renewal. And glory to God, the one who cries out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says, such a person goes home that day justified by God. Let me pray. Father, in your mercy, you have given us the word of God, and I'm thankful for its instructions for us today. I pray, God, that you would um, do what work you need to do surgically in our heart by the Spirit. I thank you now for the sign of the Lord's Supper that we're about to celebrate and all that, that it's preaching to us about Christ's death for his people, his mercy, his ongoing sustenance until he calls us home. But ultimately, that's a sign pointing to a reality, and we pray that we would trust the God, the reality. So help us today in Jesus' name. Amen.